0: Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to Second Samuel, in chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12, and you'll find this on page 263 in the church Bibles. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. If this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Reba of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Reba. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Reba and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold. And in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem." In our evenings together over the last year, we have been going through the book of Samuel and we have been spending a considerable time on the life of David. David was uh, a great king. Uh, He had accomplished much and had ascended uh, to a position of prominence. Not only had David become king of Israel, but when he became king of Israel, he defeated the enemies of the Israelites He had united the tribes together, and he had brought a certain stability uh, to the people of God under uh, that kingdom. David's ascendancy, though, was not only in his victories over his enemies. David was also the recipient of God's promises. God had promised David that his offspring would rule forever. He promised that his offspring would be the means by which God's blessing would be realized. That God would appoint a place for his people. He would establish them. And it was through David's offspring that God's promised blessing would be realized. Not only for the Israelites, but for the nations. And so there's a reason why there is so much prominence given to David in the Bible. He is a man who accomplished great works. Uh, for the people of God, but he was also the recipient of great promises. And so we've been watching David grow in ascendancy over many uh, chapters in the scriptures. But even a man who is described as a man after God's own heart is capable of falling incredibly low. And David had done just that. David had an affair. He had committed adultery uh, with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. He had orchestrated the murder of one of his own soldiers by ordering his commander-in-chief Joab to have Uriah put to death. David was trying to cover up his steps and it seemed like it had worked because Uriah was dead and David then married Bathsheba and then he had the child uh, as uh, now married to Bathsheba. And it seemed that David had successfully covered all of his steps. But at the end of chapter 11, it tells us that although David had done all these things, it displeased the Lord. David told Joab, don't let this be considered evil in your sight. But it ends by telling us it was evil in God's sight. It was something that was wrong for David to do that. But God doesn't simply passively watch to see what people do. He doesn't simply passively watch us go into ruin or to turn into rebellion. This evening, we want to see how God really does show grace to sinners. What God's grace looks like in the life of one believer, what God's grace looks like in the life of a sinner. And so this evening, as we're turning to chapter 12, we want to really look at the idea that because we need uh, God's grace, we are to look to him to be rescued from the power of sin. We want to look at this chapter in three thoughts. We want to think about this theme of grace in terms of God's grace is something that chases us. God's grace is something that convicts us. And God's grace is something that changes us. First, it is God's grace is something that chases us. Notice there at the beginning, it doesn't just uh, end with God being passive about his displeasure about what David did. It tells us that the Lord acted. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is that prophet of God, he's the prophet who had brought David the good news of God's promises. <coughs> Nathan was that uh, court official who declared God's word to David about what God intended to do in the future. But now it's that same prophet that is going to confront David about his sin. And as, David, uh, as Nathan makes his way there, uh, he comes to David and he tells him a certain scenario. Sometimes when we hear this, if we're familiar with this event, uh, we hear it being described as a parable being pitched to David but there's really nothing in this that would indicate that it must be a parable the reason for saying that is is that David was a king and one of the jobs of a king was to administer justice uh, it was the king's responsibility to ensure that righteousness was being administered and so it wasn't uncommon for kings to handle situations and to give or to adjudicate those situations And so what we're being presented here with is Nathan presenting the king with a scenario. It's not as though he necessarily comes and says, I have a story I want to tell you, David. But rather, he simply describes a scenario and is waiting for the king to weigh in on it. Tell me, king, what should we do with this situation? And so as he is presenting this scenario, as he's presenting this case, he's really describing these two individuals, a rich man and a poor man. And he's asking David to adjudicate, give give your evaluation, give your judgment, David. What should be done with this scenario? The rich man has many flocks and many herds. The poor man has but one little ewe lamb that he treasures and cherishes. But the rich man, when a traveler comes to visit him, thinks it would be a pity uh, to take one of his own flock. And so instead of using some of his own herd or some of his own flocks, he takes from the poor man. He takes his cherished little ewe lamb and he uses that, he kills that in order to serve uh, his traveler guest. And as he presents this scenario to David, it tells us that the king became terribly angry, that David uh, explodes uh, as he's about to give his judgment. And his judgment is that this man deserves to die. He deserves death for what he's doing. And then he says that he he should repay fourfold for what he has done. The law of God is actually very clear what should have been done here. In the old covenant, if you stole someone else's livestock, someone else's property, the law demanded that you did pay back fourfold. That was to prohibit people from stealing. Uh, because you would have to pay four times that back to the person that you stole from. So when David says he should pay back fourfold, David's right. That's what the law demanded. But the law didn't demand that a person would be put to death for taking someone else's sheep. But David's anger, his terrible anger, is either uh, an indication of his own explosive agitation Or perhaps better yet, it's as David himself says, because he sees beyond the act. That David doesn't just see this as a mere property act issue. This isn't just about thievery. As David is hearing the scenario presented to him, he sees this as an act that is despicable. It's heartless. Because this rich man has taken something that was cherished by this other person, and he did it without any pity. He was heartless in what he did. And so it goes beyond simply the act to the attitude. And David here is making this judgment on the basis of what he hears in this person's attitude, that he would be so heartless to this poor man. And so he gives his judgment To Nathan. But as he comes to make this decision, this this judgment to him, then we're told that Nathan then turns it to the point he wants to make. And he says, David, you're that man. Nathan drives home the point that David is that heartless man who has taken what was cherished by another. He has taken it for himself and he was completely heartless in what he was doing. And so here is this prophet of God who comes to David the king explaining to him what he has just done. But it's all part of God's grace that God would send his prophet to make that known to the king. What happens if God didn't send Nathan? We have every reason to believe that David would have continued just as is. You think back in the timeline. David commits the sin. David realizes what he's done wrong. He orchestrates the death of Uriah, and he carries on by marrying Bathsheba. Time keeps moving, and David has shown no signs of repentance. He has learned to tolerate that sin. And so part of God's grace here is seen in the fact that he chases after David. He doesn't leave David in his hardness, but he is rather pursuing after him who would rather tolerate and continue in his sin. It's just like in the garden, isn't it? Adam and Eve sinned, and then what do they do? They're, they're prepared to stay in that state. Let's hide. But God's not. And God chases after them. He pursues after them, and that is part of God's grace. So we see God's grace here in the fact that he sends a messenger to David. He sends his prophet to make known the truth. But we also see the grace of God here in the way that the messenger gets his message across to David. Why does Nathan come to him with this case scenario? Why does he pitch to him this situation and ask for David's judgment? we might be disappointed and think, I wish that he came a at David. Nathan could have just hammered him. He could have said, you're a womanizer. You're a murderer. Why didn't he do it that way? It's because Nathan knows something of the human nature. He knows that every one of us, when we are exposed, when we are accused, when we are attacked, we become defensive. We put up roadblocks. We put up our guard. Well, what Nathan does here is nothing short of the ingenuity of God's grace, as one person has said. That what Nathan is doing is he's actually getting around David's defense mechanisms. He's actually going around David's defense wall here. And David's guard is let down just enough so that he can get through to him the problem that has just occurred. It is, it is a wonderful display of what Nathan is doing to show uh, the, the scheming of God's grace in order to, uh, to, to show the floodlight of our own darkness. And so we see here something of uh, a God's grace towards David. The Lord sends him to confront David, but also the means by which is one that causes David to consider it without being defensive. God works through his servants then to awaken them to the reality of sin. And that's how God works in our lives. He can, he can confront us with the truth even through the, the testimony of others. And you young people, you have to remember that. Sometimes when your mom or your dad confronts you about something, they might say something to you and it might sting. You might not like to hear it. But it might be the means by which God is convicting you about something. It's the way that God works in our lives. And it's the same with every one of us. As we were looking there in Psalm, uh, uh, in the Psalms, if a, a friend's rebuke, a righteous man's rebuke is like a balm to me, it'll bring healing. And so I won't despise it because it will restore me. It'll correct me. And so here we see that uh, in the life of David, So there's the grace that chases. God sends his prophet. He sends his prophet to get around David's defense mechanisms and to cause him to look at his own self apart from uh, being defensive. But we also see grace that brings that conviction. It tells us in verse 7 that Nathan said to David, you are the man. And then it goes on to say, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. The Lord here is confronting David about all that God has done for him and how David has responded. Now you'll notice there in verse eight, it says that God uh, says, I gave your master's wives into your arms. And we might wonder what is that actually saying? But that is most likely to be understood as a way of indicating that full control of Saul's reign has been given over to David. That that there's no aspect of the former kingdom that is outside of David's control here. Saul only had one wife, as far as we can tell, and one concubine. And the concubine went with Abner, as we already noticed. It's not so much that all of Saul's wives have been given to David as wives, as much as it is that David has control over the fullness of Israel's kingdom. God has given him so much. And yet David is still acting as what he does not have. He is still someone that is living uh, uh, with unrestrained desires. And so here, uh, the Lord exposes his guilt. You've murdered Uriah. You have taken another man's wife. But beyond the act is the attitude. Not only have you killed someone, David, not only have you taken someone else's wife, David, which by the law is to be punished by death, but David, you despise the word of God. And in verse 10, it flushes that out and says, you've despised the Lord. In our series through the book of Samuel, One thing that has been stressed is the problem that was reaping in the leadership of Israel. You remember at the beginning of Samuel, it talked about the sons of Eli. What was characteristic of the sons of Eli? They despised the Lord. It tells us there at the beginning, those who honor me, this is the Lord speaking, those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And now David is being compared in very similar words. David is guilty of despising the Lord. David was given the promises of God. God's blessing would be channeled through his line. God's purposes would be realized through his offspring. And now David is someone who is guilty of despising God's word. Despising the law, yes, he... He broke the law. He committed adultery. He he murdered a man. But he despised the word. God's purpose. God's revelation about the kingdom. He treated it lightly. And now here's David. Having guilt before God. Not just breaking the law. But an underlying attitude. That should be revolting. Because what he is doing is against God. That's what he's getting at in Psalm 51. I know my sin. Against you and you only I have a sinned against. David sinned against a lot of people. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his army. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the nation. But David realized first and foremost... My actions were against God and their heinousness is viewed in light of what I did to God. And that's what he says, I know my sin. So David here comes to a point of conviction. The Lord announces that he will bring his judgment on him. Just as David used the sword or he struck down Uriah with the sword, so the Lord will bring a proportionate judgment in causing great evil to come upon David's house. And this is what the rest of Samuel is really covering. Uh, the, the dark days of David's reign because of his sin. And in taking another man's wife, uh, David's wives will be taken from him. When David heard these words, he confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. So God's grace was not only seen in confronting David about his sin, but even in the change that came upon David. Again, step back and think about that. David committed adultery. He denied any wrongdoing. He orchestrated a man's death. He denied any wrongdoing. Many months passed. Perhaps even a year. David is willing to tolerate his sin. David has accepted his actions. And it's only now That he is convicted and says, I have sinned. That's a work of grace. That's a work of grace when a person looks at their actions and no longer defends themselves, but is broken or is shattered by what they have done. David, here in just a few words, expresses his own repentance. It's not the number of words that he uses, but rather it's that brokenness that recognizes wrongdoing and looks to God in response. Genuine repentance, then, is not evaluated by the extent of our confession, but uh, by humbling ourselves before God, like the tax collector who said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Very succinct, very simple, but also very sincere. David's sin is the focus of this chapter. And yet the scripture tells us us that all of us have sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. But it's God's grace that not only confronts us about our sin, but that convicts us about our sin, that troubles us, that breaks us, and causes us to cry out to God saying, it's true that I need your mercy. That's what David does here. It is a work of God's grace that brings that change in his life. And we see that grace towards David because it goes on to say, although the law said that the the penalty of adultery was death, in verse 13, Nathan declares, uh, uh, Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. You could also translate that The Lord himself has put away your sin. You shall not die. David's sins have been pardoned because the Lord himself will put it away. That's what the sacrificial system was teaching. This idea that the Lord will put away sin. And in the fullness of time, we see how that happened. Because it tells us at the end of the ages, Christ came into this world to put away sin. By the sacrifice of himself. How does the Lord put away sin? By putting it on his son. Who pays that penalty for sin. In order that sinners can be reconciled with God. This is the grace of God. While we deserve death. While we deserve judgment. Those who humble themselves. Can know God's mercy. And know that their sins are put away. So there's the grace that chases after david god sends his messenger his messenger confronts david in a way that gets around his defenses there's the grace that convicts david of his sins he shows him his sin but also that change inwardly in david and the communication of god's grace toward a repentant man but then there's also the grace that brings about change in david It tells us in verse 14 and following that despite uh, the Lord's pardon of David, there are still consequences for his actions. He is told that the child uh, from his adultery uh, will die. Sometimes we might think that forgiveness means removal of all consequences. But we see in scripture that that's not the case. That forgiveness or pardon from sin is dealing with eternal realities. But there can still be temporal realities, temporal consequences that we live with in this life as a result of our choices. And we see that happening here in David. His choices have real consequences. Even while he is pardoned before God's throne of judgment, he lives with the repercussions in this life for what he has done. And so we are told that this child uh, will die um, as a result of his sin. Uh, But David, notice David, even though the severity of God's judgment, it does not deter David from turning to God. Rather, it is the grace of God that put away his sin that causes him to look to God for mercy. And you begin to see something of a change in David here. Because David, who for a while now has been concentrated only on himself, on living for himself and his own desires, now is consumed with others. David denies himself the comfort of food because he is interceding at the throne of God for this child that the Lord would spare him. We see him concerned uh, about the deliverance of this, this uh, child. And when we're told that the child ultimately died, Uh, the servants were afraid to tell David out of fear of what he might do. But David recognized what was happening and he asked them, is the child dead? And they confessed it was true. David then arose and washed himself, anointed, changed his clothes, and went and worshipped. His response was not bitterness. It was devotion. In spite of what has been lost, he still puts himself at the mercy of God he still is committing himself to the Lord so we see this change in David in the sense that he is interceding for others he is there's a beginning of a restoration in David that he's not simply consumed with self but is uh, uh, pleading uh, for this child even though the child ultimately dies we see this change in David as well uh, even in his contemplation of perspectives Uh, In verse 20, after he goes to the house of the Lord and the people, the servants question him about his actions, which really seem to be inverted. You're grieving when he was alive and you're carrying on with life now that he's dead. But David explains why. He fasted for a reason. It was a reason that God would answer and deliver this child. But there's no point fasting now that his child has died. But David goes on to explain He can't come back to me, but I will go to him. David is saying more there than simply that he will go to the afterlife. David is saying that he believes that he will be reunited with that child in the afterlife. And so David has a perspective here that is future-oriented. Instead of being consumed with the desires of the present, David is looking at things framed in the totality of God's truth. He's able to look at things rightly. And he's able to have hope on that basis. So he is concerned for others. He is living in light of the future. But he's also uh, contemplating God's grace. David then, uh, it says, he comforted his wife Bathsheba. And uh, they had a child and they called his son Solomon. Now for the first time Bathsheba is called his wife. But now for the first time he's said to comfort her. David obviously was seeking to be reconciled with Bathsheba. But in naming this child Solomon, it is a word that describes restoration. It is a word that describes completion. It's a word that describes peace. And so when he describes his child peace, David is a man who is living in light of God's dealing with him believing that he has been restored in God's grace and favor. He is a man who has been shaped by God's dealing with him. But more than that, the prophet comes back and tells David this child can also be called Jedidiah because he is beloved of the Lord, which is a signal that this child is the one anointed to be the future king. This child will carry on God's purposes. David screwed up, but God's purposes are still secure. God's promise is not bound by the faithfulness of David. God's purposes will prevail. And ultimately, it is looking forward to a beloved of the Lord that God's blessing will be realized. That's Jesus. Jesus is the beloved of the Lord. He is the Jedidiah, but he is also the one who comes to put away our sin. And so all of God's promises and his purposes are pointing us forward to the future. In spite of David's failings. That's grace. It's grace to know that even when we have failed, God doesn't fail. And so as we think about grace, as we hear about grace, as we contemplate grace as a community of faith, what does it mean to say that God is a God of grace? It means he chases after sinners who are hiding from him. It means that God convicts them of their sins and brings about a change in their lives. It means that God completes his work. Where we fail, his son is victorious he succeeds. And so we see in Christ one who is beloved of the Father, but one who ultimately brings the blessing that we all stand in need of. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, but there is a Savior. And if we trust in him, we can know God's mercy as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we think about grace, that we would see the richness of it that we would see how you can work in lives and in situations where there is unrepentance, where there is hardness of heart, how you can bring people who have been uh, um, tolerating sin for great periods of time uh, to a change and to a great uh, humbling. And we pray, Lord, that we would be thankful for the work of your Spirit who causes us to look to the beloved of the Lord and is able to reconcile us to our God and Father. Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to live by your grace and to see that in Christ there is mercy for sinners. So go before us, we pray, in Jesus' name.